0: Addicted to Love, autobiography of Jan Leeming. Chapter twelve The Luckiest Woman on Earth I very much wanted to be Eric's wife. I suppose I'm old fashioned and despite my failures, was still willing to commit to the man I loved. Mind you, life was not a bed of roses emotionally. We were having a great deal of difficulty both with the relationship between Jonathan and Eric, and also the general interaction between Eric's children and Jonathan and myself. It's only natural to experience difficulties with step relationships. I've spoken with so many folk who've had to deal with the step situation, taking on offspring of any age, from babies through toddlers, teens, middle-aged and even retired sons and daughters. It's never easy. Relationships within families are not always plain sailing, so why should total strangers brought together by an accident of love fare any better? There are the natural jealousies and possessiveness. Looking back, I should have coped a great deal better. My only excuse is that I was extremely busy, saw too little of Eric, and very often had to share him with the children. I'm sure, quite understandably, they would far rather have had their father to themselves, but I was around, and Jonathan was possessive. So we were all performing a juggling act. However, our love for one another was not in doubt, and I left it to Eric to plan when, where and how we would marry. Then, as far as my future broadcasting career was concerned, I made an even bigger mistake than I'd made when I attended the Conservative rally in 1987. In April, I recorded a party political broadcast for the Tories. The Sunday Mirror headline read, Labour fury at Tory Jan. The story was written by the paper's political editor, Alastair Campbell. It stated that senior Labour figures wanted to ban her as a presenter of factual programmes if she ever returned to her former career. Labour's communications director, Peter Mandelson, wrote to Deputy Director General John Burt and said, People are amazed that a personality with such strong BBC links should be promoting the Tories. He asked Mr Burt what contractual restrictions are placed on BBC stars to prevent this sort of abuse. Mr Mandelson said later that it didn't matter that Miss Leeming no longer works for the BBC, while the BBC said she was free to do whatever work she wanted. Call me naive, but I'd absolutely no idea I was considered to have such importance or powers of persuasion. Apart from guesting on the odd programme, I've never done any substantial work for the BBC since that date. How times have changed. I don't know what corporate work I may have lost due to my political affiliation, but I know of one definite cancellation. I'd been booked to make a presentation in the north of England... The date was cancelled, and the people were quite upfront with my agent about the reasons why. They didn't like my politics. Later that month, I was invited to a reception at Number 10 Downing Street. I also received a letter of condolence from Cecil Parkinson over my treatment in the Sunday Mirror. Although I was flattered, it really didn't compensate for the bad odour caused within the BBC. Still, it was my own silly fault I should have thought it through more fully. But then, you can't sit on a fence all your life, can you? And surely you should have the courage of your convictions. Except mine appeared to be out of step with the establishment at the BBC. Meanwhile, plans were progressing for our wedding. We wanted to marry abroad. It wasn't quite as easy to make arrangements as it is today, Now there are companies devoted to organising overseas weddings, from the flowers, cake and dress, through to the ceremony and reception. We originally fancied the Seychelles, but the political situation there was unstable. Because we wanted the children to be part of the celebration, we eventually decided to wed in France. The French have even more red tape than we do, added to which I had to provide proof of my change of name by deed poll. My standard poodle Fleur had chewed it up years ago. Fortuitously, I had kept the bits in an envelope and had to stick the whole thing together, all 20 pieces. Add to that, that the need for birth and divorce papers to be translated and notarised, and it proved a legal nightmare for Eric. We told absolutely no one in England of our plans, not even my parents. Owen and Mireille were in on the secret, as they were to be the best man and matron of honour and were to look after the children on our wedding night. They had tried to synchronise their own wedding to be on the same day, but somehow didn't manage to bring it off. That really would have set the villagers gossiping. We were to marry on a special Monday, totally forgetting that much of Provence is fermé on that day. The French don't have rich fruitcake for their celebrations. They go for a pyramid of profiteroles covered in spun sugar. We wanted to do everything the French way, but no, the Coquembouche has to be freshly made and they couldn't oblige for a Monday. We settled for a superb concoction of sponge and my favourite fruit, raspberries. Because it was closing day, I couldn't have a bouquet of fresh flowers either, so a lovely mixture of silk flowers was arranged in a posy to match my outfit. The dress was by a French design house called Chacoc. I liked their clothes and often purchased them from a lovely dress shop in Beaconsfield. I'd bought the outfit months earlier with no intention of using it for our wedding. It was just a simple summer dress in light cotton muslin, in delicate shades of blue and green, but it seemed ideal for the occasion. We set off for our usual Provencal holiday with no one suspecting what we were going to do. Eric had chosen the date 8th August. Apparently, the eighth day of the eighth month of 1988 was an auspicious date in the Chinese calendar. It also reads the same backwards as forwards. We've no leanings towards China, despite my name, Li Ming, but it seemed like a good luck omen. We indulged in our usual holiday pastime of going to the local pool with the children, our lunch of baguettes, cheese and ham, a bottle of wine in the cool box, and good thick books to read. Despite our ages and previous marriages, We decided to be traditional and not spend the night before our wedding together so that Eric would see the bride for the first time at the village Mairie, the town hall. So Eric trotted off up the road to Owen and Mireille's house, leaving me with the children. The morning turned into a French farce. I was getting ready when there was a knock at the door. Owen said, you're going to have to go to the notaire's office. Neither of you has signed a marriage contract. The form is a bit like a prenuptial agreement, and in France, it's obligatory. We had very little to leave each other, but the legal requirements had to be fulfilled. I had my hair in rollers when Owen arrived, so I threw a scarf over my head, pulled on some clothes, and off we went. Our village was too small to sustain a notary, so we had to drive to the neighbouring town of Lombesque. The staff must have thought we were really weird. Owen marshalled us around the offices in order to keep us apart. We signed the documents. Panic over. I returned home to get ready. At the mairie, Monsieur Van Loo, the village mayor, greeted us wearing a tricolour sash over his suit and led us upstairs to a function room. Behind his desk was the bust of a female who symbolises the French Republic. She was also sporting the French tricolour, Owen explained that the facial features of the bust are changed from time to time and are always modelled on the face of someone famous. When we married, the bust had been modelled on Brigitte Bardot. The ceremony was conducted in French and we said oui in the right places. At the end, Eric put a wedding ring on my finger and kissed my hand. Then the mayor's assistant handed me a booklet covered in brown plastic. I gave it to Mireille who burst out laughing. What was the cause of her mirth? She explained that as we'd married under French law, under that same law, I'd been issued with the equivalent of a maternity allowance book, allocating funds for up to eight children. I was 46 years old. By now, we knew some people in our village. We'd invited a couple with whom we'd socialised a few times. Henri had been a member of the Patrie Aerobatique de France, the PAF, the French equivalent of the Red Arrows, so he and Eric had a lot in common. His wife Arlette was a teacher and a very pleasant lady. There were several English couples who, like us, had fallen in love with Provence and had holiday homes in the village. The mayor and his wife made up the little party. We had champagne and the cake, offloaded the children onto Owen and Mireille, and set off to celebrate our wedding. Eric is a fantastic organiser of surprises, always comes up trumps. He had decided on one night of unadulterated luxury rather than a week elsewhere. He'd chosen to book us in for dinner and a night at the renowned five-star de Beaumaniere at Les Beaux. It's hosted most of the crowned heads of Europe, including our own Queen. When we arrived mid-afternoon, We were initially very disappointed to find we'd been allocated a room in their annex. The annex was not even next door to the hotel and restaurant, but half a mile down the road. The porter set off on his little moped and we followed in the car. We were miffed. Then, when we got to the annex and saw the suite with its four-poster bed and the beautiful swimming pool surrounded by exotic plants, we decided we'd got the better end of the deal. Eric is a romantic, and he'd ordered my favourite roses, peach, and a bottle of champagne. We'd already had champagne at home in the village, but we opened the bottle and were decidedly squiffy and very happy by the time we went out for a swim in the late afternoon. Beaumagnier is sighted in the valley below Les Baux, and as we lay by the pool, looking up at the medieval fortification etched against a Mediterranean blue sky, We felt as if we were in heaven. Dinner that evening was a fantastic gastronomic experience. Wonderful though it was, I'd go pop if I ate like that too often. There was a wine on the list from 1888 and Eric asked the price. The sommelier didn't come back. I think he worked on the principle that if you needed to ask the price, you couldn't afford it. We couldn't have, and we wouldn't have, spent stupid money on a bottle of wine, but we were curious. Anyway, we did have some superb wine, ordered through the ordinary wine waiter. The weather was balmy, photos were out of focus because the waiter took them, and I thought I was the luckiest woman on earth. After dinner, we walked up the hill and on into the Roman village of Les Beaux, quiet, romantic and empty of tourists, We looked over the battlements, down into the valley at our To the south, we looked across the Camargue to the Mediterranean. The sky was crystal clear and full of stars. So when we got back to our suite, we stripped and went for a midnight swim. I don't know why, but on the few occasions I've been swimming at night, I can only describe the feeling of the water as being like velvet. It's a very sensual experience. Could you ask for anything more? Well, yes, a few more days of the same. But next day, we had to return to reality and reclaim the children. Apart from the joy of being married, we'd managed it without any intrusion from the press. It was almost two weeks before the story leaked. James Kelly arranged for the Daily Express to come out and take a photo. And as they had the exclusive, the other papers left us alone. There were many exciting projects during the year, but the one that I most enjoyed was working on a documentary about Jack the Ripper. Representatives of Cosgrove Murrah, an American company, came to England and held auditions for the role of reporter, and I got the job. The year 1988 marked the centenary of the appalling crimes carried out by the Ripper in the East End of London. The programme format was to look at various individuals who at one time or another have fitted the profile of the Ripper. These range from the Duke of Clarence to Queen Victoria's surgeon and a Polish man called Kominski. My role was to visit the various parts of Whitechapel where the bodies had been found and scene set. I remember the area of the first murder. It was in a road parallel to the Whitechapel market. Although it was warm and a sunny day, as I recorded my piece to camera, the hairs on my arms stood on end. I had to interview various experts in their different fields, people such as Colin Wilson, a well-known crime writer, and also Donald Rumbelow, the then curator of the Black Museum at London Scotland Yard. On American television, there would be a panel of expert psychiatrists and psychologists to whom the profiles would be shown. Peter Ustinov was to chair the proceedings on the other side of the Atlantic. At the end, the panel and the television audience would be asked to vote for who they thought was the Ripper. Interestingly, the panel in America came to the conclusion the Ripper was the Polish man Kosminski, one which has been arrived at several times in the intervening years. As we were working on different sides of the ocean, Mr. Eustonoff and I were not due to meet. But Andy, the programme director, discovered Peter was going to be in London briefly for some filming. He asked if it would be possible for us to get together. Peter agreed to meet Andy and myself for dinner at the Barclay Hotel. We met at reception and he let slip he was suffering badly from toothache. Immediately, we suggested the dinner be called off. Peter is a consummate professional and insisted we kept our date. What a magical evening that was, another to be stored in my special memory box. Peter is a marvelous raconteur. He entertained us all evening with stories, lapsing into accents whenever required. Once again, I wished I'd had a recording machine with me. I remember the evening, but I can't remember the stories. Andy and I both felt privileged at having our very own Evening with Peter Ustinov, the title of a show he brought into the West End not long afterwards. Perhaps we were by way of a tryout. The programme was due to have a showing in England, but scheduling ruled it out. Granada Television were making a film of their own, starring Michael Caine and Susan George. Although our programme was a documentary and very different from theirs, there was a conflict of interests, and it didn't get a transmission here. But friends of mine in Australia and America saw it, and it went on to video, which you could purchase if you belonged to a video crime club. Unfortunately, I didn't get royalties. My friend from Tom Tom days, Richard Wade, had left the BBC and was working for business in the community and asked me to do some work for him. I attended one of their functions in Sheffield, and as Prince Charles was their president and in attendance, we were introduced again. In the local papers, photos of the two of us look as though we were sharing an enormous joke. Maybe he remembered what he said to me at beating the retreat at the tercentenary of the Royal Hospital. It was going to be another working Christmas for me. I was to play Robin Hood in Babes in the Wood with the comedians Little and Large at the Reading Hexagon. This time I took singing lessons, as well as lessons in how to use a stave and how to shoot an arrow. Reading could hardly have been more convenient for me as it was only a half-hour drive from home. The cast were great fun, especially Mia Carla, who played the fairy. She opened the show appearing out of the darkness in a frothy white tutu. Mia was a large lady with a voice to match and definitely not the archetypal slim and pretty pantomime fairy. But she was always ready with a rejoinder if anyone commented on her size. She was a very funny lady and my son Jonathan really fell for her. He played the tape of her show songs endlessly. Little and large were very good to work with. They not only corpsed the rest of the cast, but they were always dissolving into giggles themselves. My maid, Marion, was Eddie's wife, Patsy Ann Scott. We liked each other and worked well together. Although I have to admit, it's very difficult romancing someone of your own sex. Eddie and Patsy lived in Bristol and were great friends with my friend and hairdresser Jean. She came to the show and in one of our love scenes, I deliberately planted a kiss firmly on Patsy's lips. Patsy went beetroot and we could hear Jean's laugh reverberate around the theatre. Jean's laugh would not only wake the dead but bring them back to life. In 1988, my friend Kit came over from Australia with two of her children. Having been born in England, she understood the tradition of pantomime but her very Oz offspring hadn't a clue. Come to think of it, The whole thing's crazy. Men dressed as women and women playing lead men, romancing lead women who are women. No wonder they'd no idea what was going on. I'm not sure the English children did either, but it was their letters which I treasure. They all carried drawings and paintings of the main characters and lines such as, "'What I like best was when you kicked the sheriff of Nottingham.' "'My best part was when you got married.' The year 1989 brought a fair amount of corporate work, but it was beginning to tail off. This was only to be expected. Companies want the latest hot property to attend their launch, present their conference, grace their awards ceremony. My professionalism was still the same, but I'd been off mainstream television for nearly three years. Eric's move to Carabina was proving to be a mixed blessing. Despite more responsibility and a higher salary, The three to four hours of commuting each day into London was taking its toll. Also, after 18 years of service integrity, he found it hard to tolerate the wheelings and dealings and hypocrisy of the business world. He took advantage of an opportunity to develop his training skills as a consultant, but work was spasmodic and there was a recession looming. One of us has got to earn a regular salary, he said. Your business is too fickle. So he took out a large loan and retrained for a commercial pilot's licence. After a spell combining management training with freelance training, he was offered a position flying with British Midland. He took the job. I had a few interesting media jobs during the year. Among others, I stood in for Steve Race on The Steve Race Show on BBC Radio 2. I enjoy writing scripts and found the programme quite challenging. I was also asked to be part of the team on a new magazine programme, The Garden Party. In 1989, Glasgow had been designated European City of Culture, and this accolade signalled a revitalisation of the city. The Garden Party was a magazine programme, similar to the old Pebble at One, and was to be transmitted from the Botanical Gardens close to the BBC Studios. Pebble Mill hadn't been the easiest programme from the technical point of view, as it came from the lobby of the studios in Birmingham, but Garden Party was even more difficult. So long as it wasn't pouring with rain, we did most of the interviews outside in the gardens, and our fallback, in case of inclement weather, was a massive greenhouse called the Kibble Palace. So, as in the old Pebble Mill days, we froze or fried. My colleagues were Paul Coyer, the late Karen Keating, and the soon-to-be-immensely-successful Eamon Holmes. It was an interesting programme, but we didn't have as many of the big-name stars as we'd had at The Mill. Birmingham had been a difficult enough venue for attracting the stars who were in London promoting a film, book or something else. Glasgow was just a tad too far. My fondest memory was my interview with Joss Ackland. He was such a lovely person, as well as being a fine actor. We exchanged Christmas cards for a few years, and when I read of the death of his wife, Rosemary, I felt so sorry for him because they were devoted. Long-lived marriages in the entertainment world are the exception rather than the rule. When Garden Party came to an end, I went straight into making a series of ten inserts on craft for This Morning, The series was funded by HTV, who sold it on to Granada. I loved making them, as I've always been fascinated by the arts and crafts world. We covered so many interesting subjects. The making of love spoons, creating lifelike pictures of animals from the dyed, dried grass, hares tails, glass blowing, the making of automata. The series must have been popular because we went on to make 20 more inserts but I know it wasn't financially viable for HTV. When the director rang to say Granada wanted another series, which he and I would have to fund, although the budget was so small that we'd be lucky to see a return on our outlay, I reluctantly declined. I really couldn't see why we should subsidise a production for a huge company like Granada, however much I enjoyed the work. I'd been having some run-ins with James Kelly at IMG and felt they weren't serving my best interests. I thought that basically I was much too small fry for them. They were used to dealing with clients who earned millions and I felt like a tadpole in an enormous lake. So I changed agents and joined Arlington Enterprises run by Annie Sweetbaum. Corporate work was still coming in on a fairly regular basis. I was earning reasonable money and she was happy to have me as a client. My hairdresser, Jean, knew I was unhappy with IMG and suggested that I phone John Miles, a neighbour of hers, who was a successful agent in the West Country. Among the big mistakes in my life was in deciding to stay with a London agent and not making that phone call to have a chat. John is a hugely successful agent, a kind and caring man, and with hindsight, I feel he would have guided me at a particularly vulnerable time in my career. He is the agent who represents Carol Vorderman. Need I say more? She is a millionaire I did contact John years later, but by then my star had waned and he declined to have me as a client. Press coverage had died down to almost nil, which suited me admirably. There were the odd nasties. But in my eyes, they were totally expunged by a really kind piece written by Esther Anson. Although we knew each other and had socialised occasionally, we were by no means close friends. So nepotism didn't enter into it. I didn't even know she'd written about me until someone told me. Over the years, hundreds of viewers have either written to me or spoken to me about the fact that they didn't know why, but they preferred the news when it was read by the likes of Richard Baker, Kenneth Kendall and myself. I maintain this is because we had theatrical backgrounds, in my case professional and in Richard's amateur, but we weren't journalists, which is what became the required prerequisite. In a three-column article, Esther declared that... Jan had the actress's skill in reading aloud, presenting the mix of the day's most important events, intricate facts and figures, unfamiliar foreign place names, so that we, half asleep on our sofas, could hear and, most important, could understand. Fashion killed Jan Leeming's career as a newsreader, the same fashion that swept away Richard Baker and Kenneth Kendall. Their mistake? To make it all look far too easy. So the decree went out that the news should be read with gritty authority by experienced journalists who could put their own stamp on the stories. But not all journalists are built like Sir Alistair Burnett. There have been some disasters. Fine reporters reduced to stammering misfits in a claustrophobic studio, spotlit and sweating. Fashions come and go in television. And some bosses will return to the policy of the best writers writing the news and the best readers reading it. Well, the fashion didn't revert, but I agree with what she said. Some fine reporters and correspondents made an excellent transition to news reading. Others? Well, they didn't. Sometimes I wonder if they've been put through a course where they're told to stress every fourth or fifth word regardless of meaning, as well as waving their arms around like windmills. Wrong words are stressed, stories are badly and ambiguously written, and it's sometimes difficult to understand their gist. The correct way to emphasise is by a change of pace or a slight alteration in intonation and the merest hint of a pause before a story of gravity. The art of presentation is totally different from that of journalism. Also, what is written to be read aloud is different from that simply to be read. Anyway, that's my private hobby horse, so I'd better get off it. Standards have slipped hugely since then. I've even had to modify my own book in order to read it aloud for recording. We were still on the guest list for some highly enjoyable social functions, Wimbledon, Ascot and Charity Balls. I've been fortunate to meet most members of the royal family, but the closest I got to Princess Diana was at the British Paraplegic Sports Society Ball held at Osterley Park House. We weren't introduced, but we were only a few feet apart on the dance floor, and I have to say, she was a stunner. Simon McCorkindale and Susan George had a first night for Stealing Heaven. It was a world charity premiere in aid of SOS, the STARS organization for spastics, now renamed SCOPE. I was a member of SOS, and as friends of Susie and Simon, we received an invite to the screening and to dinner afterwards at Les Ambassadeurs in London. It was a memorable evening and so good to see the actors again. Although Eric and I weren't racing fans, the social side is enjoyable and one can do some interesting people-watching. At the Ascot end-of-season race meeting, I sat next to David Seif from Marks & Spencer. When asked whether I shopped at their stores, I replied that, although I loved their food products, I didn't buy their clothes because, locally, in Windsor and High Wycombe, they rarely had my size and I found the clothes dowdy. I didn't mean it as a challenge, but that's what it became, and Mr Seif invited me to their HQ in London to talk about my opinion. After lunch, we were invited to place a bet. I hardly know one end of a horse from another, but I placed a bet on an outsider and won almost £200. With my winnings, I took Eric and myself out for dinner and an overnight stay in an hotel. It was the first and last time I've ever won on a race. I wouldn't place a bet now, and I'm against horse racing. Christmas 1989 saw me in panto again. This time I played Prince Charming in Cinderella. It was a short run of five weeks in Torquay. The production was made on a shoestring, but I have happy memories of after-show dinners with the highly talented Leslie Randall and other cast members. The critiques weren't bad. I was praised for my acting ability. Her background on the stage showed through, not just a former personality appearing in another guise. Unfortunately, her singing voice failed to match her looks and acting skills. Very fair comment, I felt. Christina Foyle invited me to her luncheon for Peter O'Toole and asked me to be the guest of honour. Not only was I pleased to be asked, but it meant sitting next to Peter, whom I'd worshipped from afar ever since the film Lawrence of Arabia. I can usually find something to talk about with anyone, but not Mr. O'Toole. The only other person with whom I felt so awkward and inept was Mary Archer, Geoffrey Archer's wife. After I'd got over the pleasantries of saying how much I'd enjoyed his performance in various films and plays, conversation stopped. I was very grateful to have Ned Sherin on the other side of me. He hardly ever stopped talking. The proposed lunch with David Seif took place in February, He'd asked me if I would commit to paper what I felt was wrong with my local M&S stores. I spent a couple of days looking around, putting my thoughts on paper, and then went to London for the lunch. I was highly embarrassed when I realised it wasn't just a lunch between the two of us. He had also invited senior members of his staff. I stated that, although their quality was as good as it always had been, other stores were catching up on quality front, and charging far less. The lack of changing rooms was off-putting. Outside London, the stores didn't have enough smaller sizes, and overall, I felt many of the clothes were dowdy. The failure to accept anything other than a cheque or an m and card was, in my opinion, a negative feature. I'd written all this and more down and was amazed when asked if I would let his staff have my typewritten pages. We then had lunch and afterwards I was shown around their flagship store at Marble Arch. I remember commenting that if half the clothes at that store made their way to the provinces, I felt they'd be far more successful. I only mentioned this incident because of the decline of m and almost a decade later, and for many of the reasons I'd highlighted. It's a bit like politics. The people in charge are very often out of touch with the grassroots feelings of the populace. In 2002, they introduced their Per Una range and I have some smashing bejeweled jeans hanging in my wardrobe and they're still there. Eric and I went to the theatre to see An Evening with Peter Ustinov. We found it hysterically funny. As I'd met Peter before, we ventured backstage after the performance. The commissioner handed in our names and we were asked to wait, which we did. Eventually, Peter's dressing room door opened and out-swept Joan Collins. I'd met her over a decade previously when she was a guest on Pebble Mill. She was stunning then, and the years hadn't dimmed her beauty. Peter was charming to both of us. Around this time, I was invited to be a judge on the NCR Book Awards. The final book list of ten contained esoteric works from Citizens by Simon Sharma, The Shelleys and the Godwins by William Sinclair, through books like Diana's Story about the life and death of a woman suffering from M.E., to light reading such as A Year in Provence by Peter Mayle. As the aim of the award is to stimulate interest in non-fiction writing, publishing and reading in the UK, I took this to mean the kind of book that would be readily purchased from a shop such as W.H. Smith. So I opted for Peter Mayle's Oeuvre, I was totally voted down because the book was seen as too popularist. Of course, it went on to be a major bestseller and made a fortune for Peter, whom Eric and I met later in the year in Provence. The original book had a front cover sketch of Peter's house. It was only a few miles from our village. Through his job, Eric is an excellent observer, and we went out one day to see if we could find the house. No one was at home and I left a note saying how much I enjoyed the book and was sorry that it had not won the NCR award. A few hours later, we received a phone call inviting us to lunch with Peter and his wife, Jenny. The house was charming and exactly as described in the book. Unfortunately, too many people found out where they lived and eventually they decamped to America. In June, I undertook a roadshow for Procter & Gamble. They were one of the first companies to make a large investment of around £10 million towards becoming more green with their products. It was an action of which I approved and I was happy to endorse it. The tour comprised talking on radio shows and making one or two television appearances. I had to go to Belfast for an engagement, an interview on BBC Radio. Robin Walsh, who'd been the assistant news editor in my days of news reading, had moved up the ladder and was the controller of BBC Belfast. I was in the building, he was available, so we arranged to meet for coffee. I am a Capricorn. I don't like loose ends and have to put everything in its right place. I had never got to the bottom of my dismissal from BBC News and it rankled with me. While we were having our coffee, I said... Robin, it's now well in the past, and I'd like to draw a line under the matter, so please tell me why my contract wasn't renewed. He hummed and hawed a bit and replied in his deliciously light Irish accent, well, you know what was the reason? No, I don't know the real reason, or I wouldn't be asking. Eventually he told me, ah, it was because you weren't a journalist. Fair enough, said I, but neither was Moira Stewart. His coffee cup rattled in its saucer, and he changed the subject rapidly. Is Eric still flying? he asked. So I never will get to the bottom of that mystery. Employers do not usually get rid of presenters whilst they're still popular with the public. Life for me was slowing down. In many ways, I was happy to have more time to myself, but Eric was away a great deal of the time. Flying for a commercial airline is not good for anyone's social life. The hours are antisocial, and not being given one's roster until a couple of weeks in advance doesn't allow you to plan much ahead. Although we were still invited to many interesting functions and charity events, I was beginning to feel a lack of self-esteem, and was worried about not earning an income. I'd worked all my life, and having too much time on my hands was alien to me. I reached a stage where I was not at all happy with myself. I felt worthless because of the lack of work. My doctor suggested some professional help wouldn't go amiss and sent me to see a psychiatrist called Professor Rees, the father of Angharid Rees, the actress. I remember that first meeting quite vividly. He was such a lovely man and greeted me in his lilting Welsh accent, not as a patient, but as a fan. Initially, he couldn't understand why I was in his office at all. After I'd sat and poured my heart out to him for over an hour, he understood where I was coming from. It's very hard to have been what seems to the outside world at the top of one's profession, and then to find oneself more or less on the professional scrap heap. Even harder when members of the public so often asked why they didn't see you anymore. I was finding it more and more difficult to look at the positives in my life, of which there were many. I had several meetings with Professor Rees, and then he handed me over to one of his assistants, Mary Stones, who was a great help in restoring at least some of my belief in me. At least Eric was a happier man, now that he was back flying aircraft, albeit commercial ones. We had a worrying time in early 91 when British Midlands started laying off staff, But Eric fortunately kept his job. I was very relieved that he was no longer on the RAF reserve list. Although I know he was itching to be in the Gulf, I didn't share the sentiment. Some of Eric's colleagues from the Red Arrows had also gone into commercial flying. John Blackwell had joined Cathay, so we had a most enjoyable holiday in Hong Kong with him and his wife Annette. Henry and Anne Plojek had gone to Dubai, where Henry was the operations manager for the Dubai Air Wing, looking after Sheikh Maktoum's fleet of aircraft. We had two glorious holidays with them. My favourite memory was a barbecue evening. You think of the Gulf as endless sunshine, but they do have rain and flash floods. On the evening of Henry's barbecue, there was one such flood, and the road outside their house was like a small river. Henry ended up doing the cooking in the garage, wearing a wetsuit. In 1995, we planned our usual holiday to Provence. This time, Eric decided that, rather than our normal dash down the motorway, we'd take a more leisurely meander down through the Loire Valley. Mark couldn't join us at the start of the holiday, as he was away with the school's RAF cadet force. So it was planned for Jonathan and Karen, Eric and myself, to drive to Provence, and later in the week Eric would pick Mark up from Nice Airport to join the rest of us. The relationship between myself and Eric had always been passionate and fiery. We rowed, we made up, and as far as I was concerned, we went on loving despite the ups and downs. On that holiday, there was something very much amiss. Eric was incredibly short-tempered with all of us. He adored Karen, who was one of the easiest-going, sweetest children you could wish to meet, and even she managed to get on the wrong end of his tongue many times on the two-day journey to Alans. He snapped at all of us, and I couldn't do anything right. Tempers was so frayed by the time we got to our house, the two of us were hardly speaking. I couldn't make out whether it was work problems or money problems. I couldn't get Eric to open up to me. It wasn't a happy holiday, and yet he had booked the usual night at Beauménier to celebrate our seventh wedding anniversary. The atmosphere between us was so uncomfortable, I suggested that he cancel the booking, save the money, and just take us out for an ordinary dinner in Salon. He wouldn't hear of it and insisted we went ahead with our plans. We had a lovely evening, and I thought whatever was wrong was sorting itself out. Then, on our journey home to England, we stopped at a Relais routier for the night and had the most almighty row, which started because of Jonathan. Eric had put a question to the children, and as usual, Jonathan was the one who spoke up. He was put in his place, and I blew my top. I was fed up with Jonathan always being got at. The trouble was, and I knew it, Jonathan was a much more difficult child than Mark and Karen. But Jonathan was my son, and I had to stand up for him. We seemed to get over that hiccup, but Eric became more and more distant. Jonathan was not only being difficult at home with us, but also with his father when he went to visit. The atmosphere between him and Eric could have been cut with a knife, and I was piggy in the middle. Jonathan could wind me up very easily, resented any imposed discipline from Eric, And I was getting regular stress headaches. After consultation between Patrick, Eric and myself, we thought it might be a good thing if he became a weekly boarder at his school, the Royal Grammar School at High Wycombe. I was finding my son too difficult to handle, as many parents will understand. Trying to instill discipline into a stroppy teenager is a difficult job for two parents. And when the discipline is meted out by a step-parent, It's even harder to accept. Although life at home was no bed of roses for him, I genuinely believed he would enjoy the company of other boys. I was unprepared for Jonathan's reaction to the news of our decision. He begged and pleaded not to be made a boarder, but we went ahead, thinking we were doing the best for everyone. After all, he'd only be away from home for four nights and back every weekend. Earlier in the year, Eric had booked a week's holiday on the Nile to be taken in early September. He knew my interest in things Egyptian, and there were some extremely good offers. I thought the holiday was enjoyable for both of us, but the distance was there, and I couldn't get through to him. As the boat meandered down the Nile, I would often sit on deck painting, and Eric would disappear for hours on end. I felt very lonely. I'd been attending watercolour classes for several years, and an opportunity had arisen to go on a painting and conservation holiday to Zambia with David Shepherd, the celebrated wildlife artist. With Eric's blessing, I was booked to go in late September. It was an amazing experience. The Luangwa Valley in Zambia is teeming with wildlife, and the sights I saw will remain with me forever." The only thing that spoilt the holiday was not having Eric to share it with me. I sent him several postcards and took endless video film so that I could share the experience when I got home. He met me at the airport, and even after a fortnight apart, the distance was still there. I couldn't fathom it, and whenever I inquired as to what was wrong, I was told nothing. Eric had become very active in the Parents' Association at the Royal Grammar School because his son Mark was also a pupil there in the year ahead of Jonathan. Eric was instrumental in organising an auction of pledges, which I went to, accompanied by Patrick and Robin, who were now married to one another. Of the pledges on offer, there was a weekend on a canal boat. Patrick and Robin wanted it and so did we. We decided to share the weekend and made a joint bid. We secured the trip and the plan was that Eric, the children and I would have the boat for the first night and then take it along the river and hand it and the children over to Patrick and Robin. It was Friday the 27th of September, a miserable wet day it turned out to be. I didn't want to cope with an unfamiliar cooking appliance on a canal boat, so I made spaghetti bolognese, which I knew was one of the children's favourites and packaged it up with all the attendant side dishes. We drove to the boat in monsoonal rain and then had to decant children, dogs. We now had another standard poodle, Tara, as a companion for Kiri, and luggage onto the vessel. I heated up the dinner and was very aware of an atmosphere. I knew Eric treasured time with his children and got the distinct impression I wasn't required. So I took myself off to the sleeping end of the boat and started to read. I was overwhelmed with loneliness and sadness. It must have been a presage of what was to come. When Eric joined me in the double bunk, we made love, but I knew he was miles away. Once again, I begged him to tell me what was wrong. Was there someone else? The answer was a definite no. Then it all came pouring out. He felt he needed time on his own. He was going through a black period and didn't want to treat me badly. He said, I still love you, but I'm no longer in love with you. Apparently, I was stopping him doing things he wanted to do, such as private flying and being with his children. I don't think I was doing any of this, but one person's perception of a situation is quite different from another's. I can't describe how I felt. You could have asked me to jump into a bottomless pit and I would have done it. My world was falling apart. We talked in the dark for four hours. He fell asleep, but I didn't, and by morning I was exhausted. I thought I had talked him around, that we had talked things through and could work out our problems together. But that wasn't to be. He definitely wanted a trial separation. Where had I heard that before? Jeremy in 1973. I was so wrecked by the lack of sleep, I stayed on the boat while Eric took the children off for walks and lunch. I was like a zombie. The man I adored was going to go away. I vaguely remember the afternoon. Under other circumstances, it would have been beautiful. Late summer sunshine, fields with sheep grazing, and quiet peace as we drifted along. But I was in turmoil. We handed over the boat and the children to Patrick and Robin, and declined a drink in the local hostelry. I can't remember the arrangement about cars, but somehow we were in our car and heading home. We were due to go out to dinner with friends that evening, but I simply couldn't cope. I was dying inside, and the thought of making congenial conversation was anathema to me. When we arrived home, Eric gave me a large port and brandy to settle my stomach, and then another, and then another. I forgot I hadn't eaten all day, and that, coupled with a totally sleepless night, made me intoxicated very quickly. I'd had too much to drink on occasions in the past, but this was like nothing I'd ever experienced. It was as if my head was clear and functional, and I was above myself looking down on a body that wouldn't obey me. I woke next day with the mother and father of a hangover. That night was the annual Red Arrows dinner and off Eric went to the celebration. The next week was a time of lies and deception. I was convinced there had to be another woman and Eric kept denying it. I phoned my clairvoyant friend Quezzy and she said, yes, there is another woman and has been for some time. Eric and I shared a study and on the 7th of November there was one item in the bin. I looked at it. A mobile phone bill with the same number coming up again and again and at all times of the day and night and five times on the day we left England for the family holiday in Provence. So that was why he was in such a mood with all of us during the holiday. He probably wanted to be with her. There was also another number registering very long calls late at night. Did he want me to see that bill a man who was so meticulous about everything would surely not have let himself be found out by a misplaced telephone bill. I hasten to add I'm not the sort of woman who goes through her husband's pockets, but the one bill in the bin was just too much of a coincidence. I phoned the mobile but kept getting an answering service, so I tried the landline and to my surprise got an old woman at the end of the phone. Thinking I'd misdialed, I apologised and then rang again. Again I got the same person and asked if there were any young people in the house. Oh no, she said, my daughter is down south at High Wickham. She is a gliding instructor at Booker. Then it all fell horribly into place. Mark, Eric's son, had been taking gliding lessons and had often been taken home by the gliding instructor, I stupidly assumed the instructor was male. I intimated that I couldn't reach her on her mobile and asked if she had another number. She did, and her mother gave it to me. I rang the number repeatedly and left messages asking that she phone Eric on his home phone number, knowing Eric was away and that I would answer the phone. I was beside myself. I had to confide in someone and spoke to my friend Chloe. On the 8th of November, she descended on me early in the morning. Come on, she said, you need to take your mind off things. She was going to a Christmas cracker making course and I was bundled along as well. The course was being held in Gaydon, just off the M40. During the journey, I continually phoned both the mobile phone number and the landline and eventually left a message saying we should meet. At the cracker-making day, arranged by a lovely lady who'd made crackers for Harrods, I worked like a dervish and made twelve to everybody else's six. They were good, too. When Chloe dropped me off at home, there was a note on the mat from the other woman, agreeing we should meet. How did she know where I lived? I immediately phoned and suggested a rendezvous halfway between us at the post-house hotel at High Wycombe. She declared she was a very private person and would rather come to my home. I started to give her directions, and she said she knew where to come. She'd been at our home whilst I was away in Zambia. When I opened the door at 7.30 p.m., I was shocked. I'd expected to see a young, glamorous woman. Younger she was, but decidedly not glamorous. She stood on the doorstep in a puffer jacket and trousers with blonde, unkempt hair. As she came into the hall, she bent down to unlace her boots and then asked where she should go. I was so angry. I said, you obviously know the layout of the house. There's the sitting room. She stayed until 10.20 and consumed a very large amount of whiskey. I remember little of what was said except her crying and saying, you're so beautiful. I know I don't look like the back of a bus, but I don't think I'm beautiful. Maybe her thought processes were along the lines of, if she can't keep him, how will I? She told me she never meant to get involved, that it was wrong. She felt he still loved me and should come back to me. At one stage, she was crying so much, I stood up and was about to put my arms around her. What the hell was I doing? This woman was taking my husband away from me and I was about to offer her comfort. I sat down again rapidly. It was the stuff B-films are made of, except that it was all for real and incredibly, horribly hurtful. The next day, Eric came home and we talked and talked and talked. He not only admitted this infidelity, but others. If you love someone enough, you will forgive them anything. Don't ask me why I loved him so much, but I did. I said and meant it, that it didn't matter that I forgave him and that we would get through it if he wished. But he didn't wish and was determined to go. He had married relatively young, had come straight from that relationship to one with me and he wanted his freedom. I think I could have taken a separation and waited, hoping that he would come back to me in time. But the element I couldn't come to terms with was that he was going to move out and into a house owned by her. He told me they wouldn't be living together as she spent most of her time at Booker Airfield in a mobile home. But it was still her house he was going to. On Sunday, the 12th of November, Remembrance Sunday, Eric had been chosen to be the representative of British Midland and lay a wreath at Westminster Abbey. He wanted me to accompany him. My mood was the colour of my outfit, black. He even told me how great I looked. There was a drinks party which he insisted on attending, but I was so choked and just stood like a dummy with a glass in my hand. As we were in London, Eric took us to lunch at the RAF club. I could have been eating sawdust. He was going to leave the next day, and I had to believe it. When he got home, he went upstairs to pack. I was in agony and still couldn't believe what was happening around us. In one respect, nothing had altered in our relationship. Our love life was just as good as it always had been, or as I had always believed it to be. I kept hoping he'd change his mind, especially when he hugged me and told me how wonderfully understanding I'd been. However, despite this, he was adamant that he needed space and freedom and was definitely not going to change his mind. On 13th of November... I had to work on a corporate job that required an overnight stay. When I got back home on the 14th, I prayed that he'd be there, saying it was a great big mistake, that he was sorry, and could we make a new beginning. Because of his early working starts to the day, and so as not to disturb me, Eric used to keep his clothes in a separate bedroom. His room was empty of furniture, his clothes had gone from the wardrobe and most of his belongings had been taken from the loft. It was the beginning of a living nightmare for me, one from which I hoped I'd wake up.